So it's February 14th. That's right, Valentine's Day, the day of love and romance. And while everyone else is off thinking about love, we're here hosting a radio show about pleasure. Could I ask you a question? Thanks. Um, What's your guilty pleasure? I have so many. Uh, what's that even mean? Guilty pleasure. It's the fries that we go and get after work, after we've had a long day. Or maybe it's the shoes that we buy, even though we don't really need them. Guilty pleasure is something that we do for ourselves, but we're not necessarily proud of it. Our own Emily Eckelberger took to the streets to find out more about people's guilty pleasures. McDonald's chocolate chip cookies are probably my biggest guilty pleasure. They're way better than what you expect from McDonald's. <laughs> uh, well, I go onto BuzzFeed and take all those ridiculous little quizzes. Are you more Taylor Swift or Katy Perry? And what did you get? Katy Perry, always. What's your guilty pleasure? Um, probably, um, really bad reality TV shows. Yeah. What, what are you watching right now? Um, right now... Oh, shoot. What did I just finish? Probably, like, Sister Wives or something. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's really bad. Pokemon. I play way too much freaking Pokemon. I have it on my phone. I have the DS. I have, like, computer games on my computer. And I can say Pika Pika. Um, My guilty pleasure, I would have to say, would be... Oh, my gosh. Let me think. Oh, probably Bloomingberry. (laughs) Um, uh, singing in the shower, I guess. <laughs> um, Netflix. Yeah, what are you watching right now? Um, Scandal. Yeah, it's really good. Olivia Pope. I want to be her. <laughs> Guilty pleasure? Yeah. I choose Wildberry Skittles over original. Cupcakes? Um, right now I'm going through Sons of Anarchy. One Direction. They're not breaking up. Come Oh my gosh. Hiatus, people. Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Yeah, me and my roommates all love it. So, yeah, we get competitive over who's going to finish it. Yeah. Guilty pleasure. Oh, I got one. Okay, so this is disgusting, but <laughs> I like to eat my cheese pizza with, like, chocolate on top. What? Wait, so like you break up pieces of like a Hershey bar and you just sprinkle it on top before you pop it in the oven and then it just kind of melts. I was sitting there and I was kind of thinking I want both of these things at the same time so I thought why not? I mean, (laughs) it's a $2 pizza. So I tried it and now I just like kind of addicted. For American Student Radio, This is Emily Eckelbarker. So today isn't all about guilt. Pleasure is defined as a feeling of satisfaction, enjoyment, even happiness. We get it from hobbies, from food, from sex. Basically everything we do is in the pursuit of pleasure. So today we wanted to delve into the depths of pleasure, looking into the role it plays in our lives, when to sacrifice it, when to give in to it, how to define it. This is American Student Radio. We're your hosts for Valentine's Day, Emily Beck and Sarah Panfill. From Bloom, <laughs> from uh, again live, live. What is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is. This is. This is American Student Radio. Real chill, real chill. Aliens, conspiracy, journalism, and lesbians. the first time I really overindulged. I was probably four or five years old and I went to a friend's birthday party and I was all dolled up in like sparkly shoes and a dress and this party was at a candy shop or like a sugar shop, something like that. And I ate a massive amount of sweets and sugar. And afterward, I remember walking outside and I just threw up all over my sparkly shoes. 
I guess when you're a kid, it's hard to know your limits. But it's not just a kid thing. Eating contests do exist. Overindulgence is a phenomenon in a lot of cultures, especially our own. There are plenty of greasy spoon restaurants that'll put your shiny face up on the wall if you eat a monster burger or 50 hot dogs. Recently, Matt Bloom went to one of these fine establishments in Bloomington, Bub's Burgers. In the name of pleasure, he attempted to down a one-pound burger. If you're from my hometown, you know about the Big Ugly Burger. It's a burger made with one pound of meat, and it's on the menu at Bub's Burgers. The restaurant has three locations around Indiana, and I can remember going to the one on Main Street in my hometown. My friends and I always dipped our french fries in the chocolate milkshakes. It's one of those places where you can go and always know you're gonna get a good burger. But the thing that I've always wanted to try is the Big Ugly. It's an eating challenge so overindulgent, so meaningless, yet so alluring. The prize for accomplishing the Big Ugly Challenge is having your picture put up on the wall for all future customers to see. Okay, wait. Um, so you've tried the Big Ugly? Or you? No, I have not tried the Big Ugly. My dad has tried the Big Ugly. That's my friend Hannah. She's from the town over from my hometown. The legend of the Big Ugly is apparently everywhere. Were you there? I was not there. He did this with his friends because he, that's just like what he does. What do you mean that's what he I don't does? know. He just thinks it's like fun to do weird things on his own. Do you know what I mean? Like he'll go out with his friends and be like, oh, I'm going to just like let loose. So let me just like go ahead and let loose on the big ugly. And I, he didn't finish it. I know he didn't. And I know he threw up because that is what I saw. What, what did he say to you after? Did he say anything to you after he did it? Don't do it. This is Matt Tries Things, a new podcast about, well, me, Matt trying new things. This week, Matt tries the big ugly. Are you ready for this? I'm so ready. Okay, wait, tell me who you are. My name is Calvin. That's my friend Calvin. He's in my comedy troupe, and he's coming with me to try and eat the big ugly. This is strictly business. Get in, get the big ugly, eat the big ugly, get out. So tell me, tell me what you know about the big ugly. I've done it before. Have I told you that? Oh, wait. You've done it before? Yeah. Okay. 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 Great. No, this is good. Okay. So then what, tell me about what your experience was. When I did it last time, um, it was a really good burger, but like halfway through it started to feel like miserable (laughs) and it like afterwards like ruined my day just because it was so much meat, but I'm excited to do it again for some reason. (laughs) I guess at this point, my biggest question about the Big Ugly was, why the hell do people do this? I feel like something in humans must drive us to push our bodies to the limit again and again. Hello, hi, what's up? We meet up with my friend CJ Uh, as we walk into Bugs. The first thing we notice are the hundreds of pictures on the walls. I mean, look look at all the pictures. These are all people that have finished eating it. All of the people in these pictures are smiling and holding up empty tin pans with ketchup and grease stains on them. Some of them are smiling. Others don't look so happy. Some are families. Some are just friends together. There's even a picture of a baby holding a pan, which must be a joke. It opened um, with the idea. I don't know. The owner had, had the idea of coming up with this big burger. And if you ate it, you would get your picture on the wall. That's Diane. She's the manager on duty when we get to Bubs. So Adam Richmond, what what has helped us, Bubs, Adam Richmond was on Man vs. Food. Did you know that? Have you ever seen that episode? Plays usually around um, uh, Memorial Day weekend, race weekend usually, because that's when the original, when it happened back in 2010, he came and he, and his challenge was he was going to eat four of these. Finish one one and a half pound burger, and I get my picture on the wall of fame. But it doesn't have to end there. Two burgers, I get a headshot. Three burgers, I get a poster on the wall. And four burgers gets me a life-size cutout. Adam wasn't able to finish four. He only ate two and a quarter. The closest answer I got from Diane about why the big ugly was just another question. Why the big ugly? Why not? 
Yeah. Right? <laughs> Why not the big ugly? My I guess you're right. Yeah. I guess that's as deep as I'll get with a burger. What you're hearing is the sound of a big ugly patty sizzling in the Bub's Burgers kitchen. The patty starts out as 22 ounces of uncooked meat, and it shrinks down to about a pound. Diane was kind enough to take the mic in the kitchen and get some sound for us, since we couldn't go back there. So, here we are at Bub's at the grill. The patties have now been put on the grill, and we're going to be listening to some sizzle. Meanwhile, Calvin and CJ and I prepare ourselves. Do we look like people that could finish it? Um, You're hearing us talk to our waitress, Bianca, about the big ugly. All right, I predict that (laughs) you're going to struggle. Are you eating it too? Yeah. Okay, so when you go to... I'm a 5'9", 160-pound male. I normally eat three meals a day and some snacks in between those. Calvin's pretty similar to me, and CJ's a little shorter than us, but he's not going to eat the big ugly, so he doesn't matter. Sorry, CJ. Bianca thinks I'm going to struggle, but I'm pretty determined at this point. I'm thinking I'm definitely going to finish this. A few minutes after ordering, the burgers arrive. Oh my god. Oh my god. Here's your just in case bucket. Do you know what that's for? <laughs> I'm sorry. Wait, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Wait. Can you can you explain that one more time? Your just-in-case bucket. You know what that's for. I mean, in case I throw up. Just in case. Okay. And I'm not kidding about this. Diane sets down a plate with the biggest burger I have ever seen. In addition to a pound of meat, the burger basically has a loaf of bread as both sides of the bun, and all the toppings are on the side. There are two patties, a giant slab of meat, three pieces of cheese, five onions, a big... It's a giant piece of lettuce. Only oh two God. only two tomatoes. No, or no, three three tomatoes. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, probably five or six pickles. At this point, I'm thinking to myself, it really is a beautiful burger. Except it's three times the size you would ever want a burger to be. So I pick it up with both hands, take a deep breath, and... How is it? How is it? It's amazing. It tastes so good. Which kind of scares me because there's still so much left of it. At first, it's just like any other burger you've ever eaten. Warm and delicious. It's actually pretty satisfying. But 20 minutes later, it's a completely different story. Yeah. Matt just looks, looks like, like he looks like he's in so much pain right now. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much pain do you think you oh, are in right now? Five. I'm at a 4. I'm uncomfortable. At the yeah. I have at about four. two bites to yeah. go, and I'll be finished with the big one. What about up. you, Calvin? I'm a few bites into my last quarter, and I'm starting to feel it. And I'm you, like... I, how would you describe the feeling? How would you describe the feeling? It's almost like a sickness. Like, you know? Like, like I have the flu or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel like, I feel so cold and vulnerable right now. <laughs> how vulnerable are you? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> What's making me more uncomfortable right now, besides CJ's comments, is thinking about how big this burger was when it first came out. At this point, I don't want to eat this anymore. You know what I mean? I really don't want to eat this anymore. I'm done. Like, honestly, this part, it starts to taste kind of bad. Yeah. Now you're kind of like, wow, I'm so not... I'm. I can, uh, yeah, no, I'm not hungry anymore. I think because you've, like, ate so much of it already, and you're, like, your taste buds are, like, desensitized to the flavor or something like that. Okay, Matt is is literally a, b- a bite away, and we're going to get it all on this recording. This is Matt's last bite. Put it, stack it all on there. All right. Are you ready, Matt? Matt's last bite. We're going to get it. I feel like swallowing this. you can do it. You can do it. Three, two, one. After more than 20 bites, I think I lost track after 20, I had finished the Big Ugly. (laughs) I'd conquered my first food challenge. And without using the just-in-case bucket, I was weirdly proud of myself. I felt like I was part of this new club, this Big Ugly club. Bianca, our waitress, came around and took our picture. We then found a spot on the wall by some stairs to hang out. He pressed it on right there. It's beautiful. Calvin and I both look really uncomfortable in our picture, but it's like an excited version of uncomfortable. I went back to Hannah to tell her about my experience. 
So, okay, one more thing I just remembered. The waitress came by after we'd finished, and she goes, all right, who's ready for dessert? Some milkshakes and stuff. And Calvin and I looked at each other, and we both wanted a milkshake. We both wanted to get a milkshake. No! Like, it was really weird. But both of us were like, I could definitely have a milkshake right now. But Calvin and I decided against it. Neither of us wanted to risk having to use the just-in-case bucket. On our way home, after having finished the Big Ugly, we tried to figure out, why the heck do people do this? She, she, when I asked her why they have the Big Ugly, she said, why not? But what do you think makes it, what do you think makes it worthwhile? Makes it worthwhile to eat it? Yeah, to go to Bub's to get the Big Ugly like we did and eat it. I think just being able to say, you did it. Like, the bragging rights are the best part. I think that's why a lot of people do it. Looking back at it, if you were to eat it again, what would you do differently? I would stop halfway through. (laughs) I think I would have got the chocolate milkshake. From Bub's Burgers in Bloomington, and for American Student Radio, I'm Matt Bloom. If you want a burger, then eat a burger, baby. If you want some french fries, have some french fries. It's like the calm before the storm right now. (laughs) They're going to need to do a lot of that. And in case any of you were wondering, the Big Ugly is 2,830 calories. Dear God. (laughs) It's hard to find a balance between being happy and being healthy. While some tend to overindulge, others restrict the pleasure they allow themselves to the point of harm. Often, we're told that being beautiful means being thin. There's a constant struggle to find comfort in who you are. But that is exactly what Hannah Martin is trying to do. Taylor Haggerty brings us this story. Okay, Okay, this is not working. We're going to walk over this part. (laughs) That's my roommate, Hannah. She's learning how to roller skate. She's still got a long way to go. You can hear her stomping on the sidewalk. I asked for roller skates for my birthday and Christmas every year as a child. As a child? Uh Uh-huh. Why? (laughs) Just because I thought it would be really fun. A few months ago, skating around Bloomington would have been impossible for her. Hannah was diagnosed with anorexia last April, and she spent two months this summer in a treatment center recovering. Now she lives with me and our friend Sarah in our own little apartment. This is us now, but a year ago. So I wanted to start skipping meals and stuff, not to lose weight really, but to punish myself, I guess. Hannah gave herself a limit on the number of calories she could eat in a day. At first, the limit was 1,200, then it was 1,000, then 500. Near the end, she was eating under 300 calories a day. Sarah didn't notice because she didn't know what to look for. I didn't notice because I spent all of my time thinking about food, just like Hannah did. I was diagnosed with anorexia about a year before Hannah was. When you're starving, it's hard to focus on anything else. Talking to people, taking notes in class, and even sleeping will only get harder the hungrier you get. It was horrible. I would see other people eating, and I would just stare at their food. Like, I would try to figure out how many calories other people were eating, then, like, wish that I could eat the food, but know that I wasn't allowed to eat the food. Eating disorders rely heavily on rules. These rules are different for everyone, and they aren't logical. With my salads, I had to eat everything in a certain order, so it was, like, lettuce and then cucumbers and then broccoli and then peppers. I'm sure this sounds crazy to most of you, but take my word for it. Everyone listening who's had anorexia knows what I'm talking about. We all made our rules to limit calories and keep ourselves thin. And because Hannah and I were going through it at the same time and never talked about it, it turned into a sort of silent competition. First semester, there were a bunch of people hanging out in our room and you said that like you hadn't eaten lunch because you had an eating disorder. And then everybody was fawning over you and that made me really mad. Hannah wanted to be sicker than I was. She started doing more to lose weight, including exercise. I would go on nine mile walks After a while, I had to cut down on it because I just, like, physically couldn't do it. And eventually, I had to stop doing it altogether. Hannah couldn't even walk to class without having to stop and sit down to catch her breath. I had suspected her eating disorder for a while at this point, but until I interviewed her for this project, I had no idea just how bad she'd gotten. 
Her parents didn't either, although they knew something was wrong. I was eating a lot more at home to try to cover it up, but I still wasn't eating as much as I usually did. I wouldn't eat snacks or anything if they offered them to me. My dad was like, Hannah, you have to start eating. Even after she knew she was sick, she didn't want to get any better. I wanted to look really, really skinny and sick, and I guess I wanted my emotional pain to look more like a physical problem. For as long as I can remember, I've always felt like I was different and that I didn't fit in. Hannah says now that this feeling of isolation is probably because of depression. She thought she was different from everyone else and stopped eating to punish herself for it. She wouldn't accept help from anyone until one night in January when Sarah told her she was worried. I did say, like, I wanted her to get whatever help she needed. You know, I didn't know what she should do. I just wanted her to be okay, and I didn't exactly know what that meant. Hannah says Sarah was the reason she started going to therapy. I felt like if I didn't go, then she would go to our RA or, like, call my parents or something eventually. And, like, I wanted to be the one who had control over when I started treatment. Hannah met with a nutritionist, a psychologist, and a physician from January through April. I tried, and I did go over my calorie limit by a lot, and I would, like, gradually raise my calorie limit, but under the condition that I was still losing weight. And there was one week where I had gone on, like, a 15-mile walk, so I felt like I should have lost weight that week, but I actually gained, like, a fraction of a pound or something. At that point, like, I decided that I wasn't going to try anymore. It wasn't just the food, either. Hannah was still having trouble fitting in with her classmates. I felt like I was inadequate, even with my friends, because I just felt like I wasn't fun to be around, and I wasn't funny or fun to talk to, or just like, I wasn't a good friend. She went back to her old calorie counts, her blood pressure went down, and her liver started failing. They um, told me that they needed to, like, get my parents involved. They called her parents and found a treatment center. I didn't even really want to recover, I just wanted to get out. If she could trick everyone into believing that she was okay, Hannah thought she would be able to get out of the treatment center. But that wasn't what happened. The treatment center forced her to communicate and really get better. Everybody there had an eating disorder. It wasn't like this special thing. So we got to know what everybody's interests and values and stuff were outside of the eating disorder. And it was kind of nice to be reminded that that part of our identity existed too. Being in the treatment center was exactly what Hannah needed. About four weeks into her stay, she discovered something. It was this breakthrough where I was like, oh, I can recover. And everybody was like, Hannah, like you've changed so much. I didn't want to get better like until after I had already started getting better. While Hannah spent her summer in a treatment center, I spent it in another country. We didn't talk again until I moved into our apartment in August. But Sarah was much better about keeping in touch. We emailed every day. I think we skipped five days. I think she usually, I usually sent it in the morning before I went to work. And then she read it when she got off treatment at like six and she emailed me back and I got it that night. And then the next morning I would write to her. Sarah was there for Hannah the whole summer for support. Hannah was in treatment for two months. And during that time, she learned to plan out her own meals, something that she still has to do today. Do they have orange passion fruit guava juice at Spia? Every meal is divided into ounces and grams until she has just the right amount of calories. For her, it's hard to imagine ever stopping. In my mind, it's either like I relapse or I gain all the weight. How do you see this affecting you down the road? Like 10, 20 years from now, how do you see this impacting your life? I mean, I would hope that that far down the line, I would have recovered fully. At the end of our interviews, Hannah and I talked about why we wanted to tell this story. I think it's important for people to realize that weight loss isn't always good and not feeding yourself is not admirable. I wanted to tell this story because so many other people have suffered through the same thing. And like I thought I was alone and I was special for it, but I wasn't. And it's just that no one talks about it because it's not seen as a serious issue. And I still don't think that my story is worth telling, but, like, yours is, so I'll tell yours. I mean, I I relate to, like, the not feeling like your story is good enough, like, because that's how I feel about mine. I also asked if she was happy now. Probably happier than since, like, I was a little kid. One day, after we all moved in together, Sarah brought home a flyer for the local roller derby team. And I was like, hey, I've always wanted to roller skate. And so I did. So it's different ah! from the it's different from the walks you used to take last oh, year. Oh yes, most definitely. 
I'm probably not burning very many calories right now. I don't know, you're working and pretty also, hard. And also, I'm not like thinking about the calories that I'm burning, so. So it's just for fun. Yeah. From Bloomington, I'm Taylor Haggerty. In our next story, ASR reporters Tristan Fitzpatrick and Carter Barrett explore a different kind of pleasure. The Kinsey Institute for Sex Research, which calls Indiana University its home, pays tribute to all kinds of sexuality. Take a brief audio tour of the Institute in this next piece. It's a Friday afternoon and classes are over for the week. Most people are heading home for the weekend, but ASR reporter Carter Barrett and I are going to the Kinsey Institute for Sex Research at Indiana University for a self-guided tour. At the Institute, we shared our expectations for the tour and also stumbled across our first item there. I don't know what to expect, but I've heard a lot about it, and I guess I've heard that there's like some interesting things to be seen. I have no idea what to expect either. I've heard a lot of very interesting things about what's in the museum, so I'm excited to take a look and walk around. <laughs> there's like a little book that says Betty Page in Bondage, illustrated with 35 actual photos of Betty Page. So, Not simulated photos, actual photos. According to the Institute's website, it was established in 1947 by Indiana University sex researcher Dr. Alfred C. Kinsey. Kinsey wanted a place where he could guarantee confidentiality to the people he interviewed for his studies and where he could also store research on human sexuality. Here's a, a picture of a man and a woman having sex from 1890. Not kind of what you imagine when you think of 1890. I imagine the people sitting very stiff. Absolutely. And the exposure time must have been so so much longer than it is now to actually take the picture. <laughs> Sit there for quite a few minutes. The exhibit has two levels. The first displays artwork and research that's currently being done at the Institute. On the second level, however, we found more sexually explicit artwork. Yeah, Carter and I have stumbled upon a piece called Civil and Greg. It's a uh, a woman in lingerie and a leather jacket, and she's got a nipple clamp on this guy who's kneeling in front of her. He, he looks like he's having a good time, though. The collection of artwork impressed Carter and I as we made our way through the exhibit. What I'm realizing is this isn't, like, all about sex, which I thought it'd be. There's a lot of art here. I agree. I was expecting to see mostly that, but there's a lot of just people in the nude. One man was photographed nude, laying atop some um, branches here among a tree. Overall, the two of us found the Institute to be slightly different from what we had previously expected. All in all, I'd say it's a lot tamer than I imagined it in my head. Something that I thought was really interesting, too, was that they had stuff from all different eras. There were, like, derogotypes from, like, the 1850s, and I think stuff from ancient China. I think they were really trying to show that, like, sex and sexuality and homosexuality is, like, not a new phenomenon. Like, this is something that people have done and been a part of since like the beginning of time. Finally, on our way out, we spoke with Clarissa, a junior studying gender studies who volunteers at the Institute. Clarissa shared her thoughts on why sexuality is important to study. I think that gender and sexuality studies are very important because it opens people's minds to new ways of thinking about love and sex and relationships and being a human. From Bloomington, I'm Tristan Fitzpatrick. When people talk about sex, there are some things considered too taboo to bring up. We keep a lot of our pleasures, sexual and otherwise, hidden. Our next story explores a community of people whose lifestyles some consider deviant or dirty. Yet people who indulge in BDSM don't see it that way. Sarah Panfield brings us this story of one woman who takes pride in her place in the BDSM community. So, you've probably heard of Fifty Shades of Grey. You trust me? Hold out your wrists. The movie recently put BDSM on the big screen. However, for some people, BDSM doesn't just bring up thoughts of a cringe-worthy, porn-esque film. For people all over the country and the world, and for Sarah, it's a lifestyle. So, I'm Sarah. I'm a student here at IU. I've been in the BDSM community for about probably four years now. I asked Sarah to give me the synopsis of BDSM. BDSM is an acronym for bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, and sadism, sadomasochism. 
there are three pillars of BDSM, and that's safe, sane, and consensual. If you're missing any of those three pillars, it's bad news. Bondage is obviously like rope, cuffs. Discipline is more like rules. And then dominance and submission, that's where you have power exchange. So that's where it's, you know, one person can play the top, the other person is the bottom role. And then sadism is when a person derives some kind of enjoyment or pleasure from giving pain. And masochism is when someone derives enjoyment or pleasure from receiving pain. Not all people in BDSM like pain. Not all people in BDSM like bondage or discipline. And not all people in BDSM even like sex. So BDSM is not defined by any one element there's no one-size-fits-all. Sarah had a pretty innocent start to BDSM. I started off, I had a very long-term boyfriend my freshman year, and we were kind of like, hey, you know, let's try some different things. I might be interested in it. So we tried, like, just some, like, you know, beginner's kink stuff, like the furry handcuffs and a blindfold and stuff like that, and it, we ended up really liking it. So after we broke up, I decided like, hey, this is something that I want to, you know, get more experience in. So I first decided to seek a dominant because I, as far as BDSM goes, I'm a submissive. But it didn't go well. She didn't really know herself and her newfound identity as a submissive. I didn't know what my needs were. I didn't know what my boundaries were, or what kind of dominant I needed. And so it, it was just awful. Um, we were so not compatible, and that was just a train wreck. And so after that, I was like, okay, back to square one. I'm going to get a mentor. In this community, it's common to seek a mentor, someone who shows you the ropes, pun intended. Sarah found a mentor on FetLife, a forum-based, Facebook-style website for kink lovers. She realized she had a lot to learn. The first step was terminology. There was so much terminology that I didn't understand. There are so many names for roles. And what is pony play? Like, <laughs> well, I don't understand what any of this is. And what so, is pony play? It's where people dress up like ponies. <laughs> oh, like My Little Pony? Like that? that? They can be bronies, yeah, but they have... It's, it's really, really in-depth. They have, like, very fancy crafted hoof things that go on your hands and like lead ropes and stuff. Not my kink, not my kink at all, but uh, that was one thing that just blew my mind when I was first getting into BDSM. Sarah was mentored for six months before seeking out another dominant. She's been in three BDSM relationships since she first joined the community, including the one she's in now. For Sarah, the BDSM relationship is distinct of a vanilla or traditional relationship. I'm not in a vanilla relationship. I do have a dominant who, he is in a polyamorous marriage. And, like, his wife is great. She's awesome. Um, she knows about me. I know about her. It's all very honest and transparent. But he's not my boyfriend. Like, he's my dominant. Yeah, we care about each other and stuff, and we engage sexually with one another. Neither of us are exclusive. So, like, he'll, he'll, like, I'm like, you know, you can play with other girls or whatever. Like, that's cool. But, like, you need to let me know. Um, the way I look at it is, like, if my partner has a sexual need that I cannot or am not willing to fulfill, um, because I love this person and I want them to be happy, I'm willing to, I guess, in a, in a way, outsource it because I separate sex from, uh, from love. Like, you can have a one night stand that is purely physical and that's going to be way different from a sexual encounter with someone that you deeply love and care for. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of insecurities. I was very jealous and distrustful. And so relationships tended to be just miserable. Like even if the person gave me no reason to distrust them, I was just like, let me see your phone and I want your password to your Facebook. I was like crazy controlling and it was not healthy for me or the other person. And so by joining the BDSM community and being mentored and learning about myself and confronting my fears and insecurities and understanding them, it put me in a much better position to be in relationships and be more accepting of other people. Because it's really like you can't love somebody else until you love yourself. It's also hard to accept other people if you can't accept yourself. 
one thing that was really difficult for me was accepting the type of submissive that I am. The type of submissive that I am is, is called a little, and that's really the best way that I can describe it is it's a very childlike submissive. Um, and so it's like, oh, like, yeah, I like BDSM and like impact play and stuff like that, but I also like cats and stuffed animals and just like being very childlike, like watching Adventure Time and eating PB&J sandwiches. Like, that's just my happy zone. Um, and then I noticed like you have stuffed animals. <laughs> yeah, this one's this one was like 35 bucks. This is Mr. Noodles. Yeah, I like cats a lot. This is one that my dominant actually got me. He hid it in his pocket, and uh, we were snuggling, and he's like, you squeeze in it, meows. <laughs> he hid it in his pocket and squeezed it so it meowed. And I got so excited, I like literally started crying. I was so excited because like I knew that there was something cat-related in his pocket, and it was for me. I'm a crazy cat lady. If you can't tell. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah. So... There, there are little signs here and there. I have juice boxes and cat stuffed animals everywhere. Even within BDSM, it took time for Sarah to learn to accept others' kinks and pleasures, especially with individuals who have more rare kinks, such as those who are into diaper play, which Sarah describes as a more extreme version of her own kink. So, like, I'm a childlike submissive. There are people who enjoy, like, infantilism, um, where they drink out of sippy cups, eat off of like Dora the Explorer plates and wear diapers and stuff like that. And it's important to understand like there are so many reasons that somebody might be into that. Because if you think about it, a huge part of BDSM is, at least from the submissive standpoint, is surrendering control to someone. And if you really think about it, babies literally have no control like as far as like no control as it gets so to that person that could be the best way for them to completely surrender control to their top or their dominant i have no obligation to understand and that's the beauty of it i don't have to understand but i don't have a right to put them down for it do most people in your life know that you're involved in bdsm yes um i am fortunate enough to have very kink-friendly friends, and my mom and my brother and sister know as well that I'm into kink. I do know a lot of people who definitely can't tell other people. Um, people who would probably be disowned by their parents mm. if their parents knew. How did you tell your mom? Like, I, <laughs> I, I was just wondering that when you said that because it's like, I just can't imagine. Okay, I think it's important to note that me and my mom have like, a very unusually close and open relationship. I think I just told her about, uh, I don't know, my cuffs maybe or something, or or that I joined the BDSM community and her initial reaction is like, oh my God. And then I would say like, you know, I'm going to a play party and she's like, oh my God, what's a play party? <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, you know, it's just where BDSM people get together. We all bring food and we hang out and do kink scenes. So it was like shock and like disgust followed by overwhelming curiosity. I also tend to think it's really funny to make people uncomfortable just because some people are just like, uh, and I don't think that that's something people should be uncomfortable about. I don't think people should be uncomfortable talking about, you know, like any, any type of stuff that goes on between two people. I think sex should be an easy subject to talk about. Um, the fact that some people still consider it to be really taboo, I think, feeds into, you know, why people don't talk about rape or sexual assault. And so I'm pretty open about kink, and it makes some people uncomfortable, but, like, I don't really care. This is what I call my kink closet. Um, so I'm just, I'm just guess I'll start from left to right. This is a Wartenberg pinwheel. It's really just a pinwheel on a stick. It looks sharp, but like if you give me your arm, it's not. Like it just—it's oh, no. it's like a tickling. It like tickles. <laughs> yeah, it's like a tickling. So this is what is used a lot for sensation play. You pretty much use it anywhere. You, since you're the one handling it, you're in control of how much. We're all aware that to society as a whole, a lot of the stuff that we're into is is 
taboo. BDSM is is still taboo, much less now than ever before, but it is still taboo. So then this is a Hitachi wand. It's like a bullet vibrator, only like 15 times the size. And if especially if you're part of the community, we foster such a strong sense of acceptance where it's like, okay, well, just because somebody likes something that you don't doesn't make them weird. I guess it kind of abolishes the concept of normalcy. Somebody gave me a book about blowjobs <laughs> and it's actually really good. There is no normal. Um, you'll notice that the buckles have little loops through them and that's so you can put like little locks on it. Not that I would ever try to get out of them anyways because then I would probably get punished. So normal is just a matter of frequency if you think about it. Just because one thing is less frequent than another doesn't make it weird. This thing is my favorite. This is a flogger. It kind of looks like a broom, but instead of the broom having little bristly things, it's just strips of leather. Why do you think there is sort of a temptation to police people's pleasure? I think it, it really boils down to people don't like what they don't understand. And a lot of people don't like different. People don't like change in a lot of cases. And so, you know, it's it's really easy to belittle or degrade something that you don't understand or, or that you feel is a threat to you, the way that you think things should be done. And, this, you know, and even though our generation is a, bit, a lot more accepting with homosexuality as an example, I think it really boils down to what you've been exposed to. It's 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 really a form of ignorance, I think. I don't even know what's in this bag. Oh, so every once in a while, like if I'm going to go to a threesome or something, because I'm I tend to be really girly, I like to make little gift bags. Wow. Um, and so like there's in here, there's some just like random stuff, like little like lube things and uh, like little bullet vibrators just for shits and giggles. Variety is what makes things beautiful. If there was no variety, things would be very boring. If it makes somebody happy and, and fulfills them, that's awesome. Because being fulfilled and being happy is great, and I want everybody, everyone to be fulfilled and happy. For American Student Radio, I'm Sarah Panfill. Thanks to Joe Barry, a.k.a. Business Failure, for letting me use his music. Any college student knows that sex is a huge part of campus culture, and it's a huge part of American culture, too. But Matt Leeds, who identifies as asexual, prefers to find his pleasures elsewhere. Emily Beck brings us this story. A few months ago, a guy named Matt Leitz made a post on Facebook letting all of his friends know that he's asexual. That means he isn't sexually attracted to anyone and has no interest in sexual activity. I sat down with Matt to talk about what asexuality means for him and how he derives pleasure from other parts of his life. What led to your decision to post that? I had kind of come to the conclusion before posting that, obviously, quite a few weeks actually before that, but it was more... After I had come to that conclusion for myself, I was more than content just keeping it to myself. I have a lot of friends that are girls, and I realized maybe like their attitude would change whether we were at a party or like I had like had a beer or something. And I was just really just wanted to make everyone be not on edge at all because what the whole point of that was to say, I'm not gonna hit on you. <laughs> like I am so, like that is like the one thing you don't have to worry about <laughs> like is me trying to like make my way over to you and say hey get to try and get with them yeah that's what I meant okay. but I have a lot of girlfriends because I like respect them as people <laughs> I would rather them feel more comfortable knowing that than having this like creeping doubt like maybe he's hitting on me and I'm just like really not <laughs> so I kind of made it in that aspect and just to like give a heads up to the people who I choose to be friends with on Facebook, just what's going on. Do you remember what you felt like as you were typing that slash hitting the post button? Like what, what was that like? 
it was almost finalizing in a way because it was like now it's out there it's facebook official uh, <laughs> not that i wasn't going to change my mind but it was still just not concrete and i felt like after i post it just it, just, it was another breath of relief which was nice okay it's concrete and it's i mean it's in the digital like whatever sphere and i've only gotten support which is great my friends are true he also wanted to avoid interactions like this it was at a show and he like hit me and he's like i'm gonna get you laid tonight I'm like you know you really don't have to <laughs> it's not a big deal <laughs> you can i get pleasure out of other things matt likes books and records and vhs tapes and the occasional game boy game he said most of his life is centered around music so he spends a lot of time playing it in high school, he started collecting music gear. That's what he gets his pleasure from, and from being around his friends, of course. He would rather be spending quality time with them than chasing after girls. You don't really, you just don't really need to do it, you know? Um, it's not that you don't have like a normal like sex drive or anything, but it's, it's like it's easier just to not deal with it. <laughs> so do you have a normal sex drive? I would say so, yeah. But you don't want to do anything about it? I don't feel the need to. I asked Matt what would happen if he were in a healthy, committed relationship. Would he be willing to have sex with a partner if they really wanted to? It would be mainly for their benefit, I would say, because it's not really something that works for me. If they wanted to, I would be more than happy to just like, I guess, service them. I wouldn't really be initiating anything, trying sneak, <laughs> sneak my way in or anything. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to it. I feel like if I'm in a comfortable enough relationship like that, we would have talked about that beforehand and both understand where we're at. So it wouldn't be a weird thing. So you'd feel comfortable doing that, even though it's not really something. Yeah, it's not my thing, but it could be her thing or his thing, whatever. But yeah, I'm like more than open to the idea of it. What interests me is that you say like you have a sex drive, but from you talking about it, it's almost like you don't. Well, I guess it's more of a, the body's functioning, like physical aspects of it. I mean, if you don't masturbate, you'll do it in your sleep, <laughs> I guess. I'll just, just say, I'll like, yeah, I masturbate just to like get it out of my system because it's easier to deal with than like cleaning up when I wake up in the morning. <laughs> so it's just, it's just whatever, you know? It's like your body wants it, like, but you don't. It's like cleaning the dishes. Someone has to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. just so it just doesn't build up and then like uh, sp they spill over onto the floor overnight like it's, <laughs> it's just okay. that's the simplest way i could put it all jokes aside matt talked about some serious issues that he has with sex in our society i have a lot of personal conflicts with the the morality of it and like the way it makes some people feel like and other people just don't care at all about how, the, how they make the other person feel. And I think it's just convoluted and a lot of, it's a lot to think about. I'd just rather eliminate that aspect of everything because I'm more comfortable not causing all this, this tension. Picture this, you're at a party or a house show or whatever, and you're just having a good time. You're laughing with your friends, there's music in the background, you're maybe enjoying a little buzz and everything's going great. But then someone comes up to you. They start talking to you and immediately you know what they want. They're trying to pick you up. This is something that Matt absolutely dreads. He told me that he hates being approached at parties or to use his words, he hates being cornered at parties. Matt's in a band called Raleigh's Ghost. And like any guitar player, he gets approached sometimes. It was after a show we played, went upstairs and like people were like, oh, it was really good. I was like, thank you. And I turned to my right because those two girls had walked up and I was just like continuing my conversation that I was having and then they like wouldn't leave. And I just the way they were positioned, it was like, now I'm trapped in this corner <laughs> and they wouldn't leave. I don't know. And then they were just like like looking at me, not really saying anything, just like waiting for me to initiate another conversation. And I don't know what they wanted, but I was just like, please leave me alone. <laughs> like, like most of, most of being asexual is just like, leave me alone, please. <laughs> is that because when, I mean, you see like a stranger coming up to you, you feel like you know what they're after and no. that kind of thing? No, not that. Cause um, I'm like, like I, well, I'd like to meet a lot of new people. When it 
kind of veers towards that or you get that you get that weird on like feeling in your gut that you're just like you gotta leave please <laughs> i don't want to lead you on whatever you want you're not gonna find it here so the kind of love that matt is after it's different some might call it purer or more innocent it's something he's already felt i'm fully convinced i've like felt what love is to the highest extent <laughs> something that's transcended familial love like the love you have for your platonic friends and even romantic love to an extent it makes you feel like i did back when i was like eight years old and would go and play in the snow in my front yard and every winter our yard would have this giant snow mound because all the snow plows would plow it and we lived in a cul-de-sac so it was like a lot of snow but i remember specifically one winter i would dig into it and try and get to a tunnel to the other side, which was probably dangerous as hell because there's like like 80 pounds of snow above me. I would like go out there just as it was getting dark and like dig and I would like look back and there was like a little hole. You could see, I never ended up making it to the other side, but um, you could see like the entrance of the tunnel and then I would like go in and like warm up by the fire and stuff. Like the fire would like melt away all the numbness of everything and it was really nice. <laughs> And it would like tire me out. Like the fire would just like make me feel really tired. That experience, it's like the same sense of exhilaration and an adventure and solace I would find in the, in like looking from deep in that little, little ice tunnel out and see that little hole. And it's also like kind of the warming bathe from that fire and like melting away all the numbness and just making you really tired. When I know there's like something like that, I don't feel the need for like, getting the peanuts <laughs> because that's what i guess sex is is like a little peanut every now and then but it's like not it's not Wait, that what what do you what do you say what do you mean it's uh you know like when you feed an elephant peanuts i guess i'm an elephant someone's like feeding you peanuts i'm like i don't know i don't even want these i just want the whole bag the whole bag is like that feeling i just described like that's really it and i can see myself living my whole life if i had that nothing else would matter American Student Radio, I'm Emily Beck. A special thanks to local artists Kevin Crowder and Local Surfing for letting me use their music. We've explored two realms of pleasure today, food and sex. That brings us to the third area of pleasure we'd like to cover, drugs. Hannah Boone spoke with Alex Stone, a local photographer who struggled with addiction to opiates and experienced homelessness, all before his 18th birthday. I've known Alex for one, almost two years now. I knew some of what went on in his past, but just a couple of days ago, we sat down at the Monroe Public Library to talk. When Alex was 17, he was living in Bloomfield and he was struggling with an opioid addiction. Well, I guess it stemmed from being abused and also being oppressed as a homosexual in a small conservative community. We're um, having, I guess, quote-unquote effeminate type of uh, characteristics or even features physically. And kind of anywhere, just like anywhere that I went, I've, I always felt different and I always felt like I didn't fit in and that people kind of sometimes made it apparent like very well known to me that I did it for them. Pleasure like was something that I only felt when I was by myself because I didn't feel like I could just relate to other people. What other people found enjoyable, I didn't find enjoyable. I wanted to do other things that no one I knew was interested in. I listened to music that, that nobody I knew listened to. I was just very different from others. So I felt, I guess, a lot of pain in that because I just didn't feel like I fit in, so I just escaped into painkillers because I had been given one for my back pain one time, and I noticed that I felt really good, that I didn't feel any pain, both physical or emotional. I felt kind of numb, and I recognized that and sought that out because it was easier to be numb than to actually feel the pain that I was feeling at that time. So that back pain, where did that come from? Well, not only being overweight, but also, um, I had been abused uh, in many ways whenever I was younger, but some of those was getting beaten sometimes, and sometimes like being hit in the back with like 
um, blunt objects and and stuff like that, like God. yeah, baseball bats and and, and like like steel toe boots and like. At the time that all of this was starting for Alex, his mother was in jail for bouncing some bad checks, so he went to live with his grandparents. And abuse and rejection followed him there. He began to experiment with other drugs. I, I did hydrocodone, I did oxycodone, I did morphine, I did fentanyl patches when they were still gel patches. I don't even think they make them that way anymore. It's basically essentially like doing heroin. Yeah, I, I never, I haven't shot anything up, but I did snort methadone and, you know, morphine and all kinds of things. And so what was like the breaking point for you where you realized this is wrong and I need to stop? Well, it took me starting to uh, steal things from my family. I stole, if, if there were prescription medications that I knew about, I would like take some here and there. And I'd sold everything that I had. I didn't have any money. Not only that, I was, I was suicidal. I had tr- I'd tried committing suicide by taking a bunch of drugs and it wasn't meant to be apparently. Um, a f- somehow a friend caught wind, um, called you know an ambulance and I was taken care of, but I like I had to go to um, a mental hospital for a little over a week. Maybe they weren't trained on dealing with oppressed, you know, queer people. I, I don't really know what it was, but I didn't really feel like I got the adequate care. And I went back to doing drugs right after I got out. Like, like I was there for a week. I, I didn't kill my. I didn't, I didn't try killing myself. I felt like it and thought about it every day, but instead I just found more drugs to do. And, and that was kind of like, I think what I was really trying to mask is that I didn't feel like being alive. And so I just would do all these drugs. Um, so instead of not feeling like I wanted to be alive, I could just feel, I don't even know. This was like a two-year process. I wanted to kill myself again, like directly a year later, same month, almost down to the same day and was on psych medication and started feeling really weird and like I was getting agitated at my pets for no reason like and like getting upset at everything like really on edge my family had was fighting with me and telling me that I needed to find somewhere else to go and that if I didn't find anywhere to go that night then I was just going to be out on the streets and that was my what, what I had to deal with and and I'd already been staying on people's couches and I even stayed in a few houses that didn't have electricity, you know, just like, you know, trying to find shelter somewhere. He finally found shelter in Bloomington at Stepping Stones, which is a shelter for at-risk youth. He stayed there for a year, working several jobs before finding comfort in a position at Blooming Foods. He stayed there for almost two years. People who were more open and accepting and, like, just kind of loving, just not, like, not having a lot of reservations or airs and graces about who they were or who they were talking to and like it like I met a lot of like really down-to-earth really wonderful people that I still know to this day and you know some of them I made friends friendships with some Alex them, is in a really uh, good place right now there. besides doing yoga and working at the library he's thrown himself back into photography again he's involved with prism which is an LGBT youth group in Bloomington amongst a large list of other things so do you think of pleasure as a positive or a negative? I think it's more often positive. I think people use it or misuse it in a negative sense. You know, they are seeking pleasure, but what they're really doing is kind of like not being so good to themselves sometimes, mm-hmm. you know? So you think pleasure is self-love? I, I, I think so. I, I think pleasure is self-love. And, and maybe I'm only looking at it, you know, from my experience. Um, and, and maybe I need, you know, to hear someone else's experience or idea. But for me, um, yeah, it is self-love. It's taking care of myself, but also taking care of others. Like, that's what is pleasurable to me, seeing others in a good place. Um, I do yoga. Yoga has brought me into a really good place instead of seeking out everything that I kind of needed or wanted in drugs, I made really... Webster's defines yoga as a philosophy that teaches the suppression of all activity of body, mind, and will in order that the self may realize its distinction and attain liberation. In Alex's case, you could equate liberation with pleasure. There's both positive and negative ways of using it. Although we all seek it, maybe what we can learn from Alex is to be mindful of the source. For American Student Radio, I'm Hannah Boone. Our last story is a little more lighthearted. Sarah sat down with our friend Keenan to tell his story about the first time he got high. Hi, I'm Ira Glass, 
<laughs> and this is the American life. <laughs> this is that's not even it. I know. Or not. I don't. <laughs> that's my friend Keenan. All right. So I'll just speak into the mic like right here. Yeah, right I'll just hold it up. Yeah. Hold it up. Okay. All right. The story. I asked Keenan to record a story he first told in the living room of my apartment when we were swapping stories of our first times getting high. I wanted him to share it because it's one of those memories you cling to as you get older, wiser, and perhaps more sober. It's innocent and indulgent, and it's just fun. It takes place back when he was 15, in high school. He was at his friend Ross's house with Ross's younger brother, Scott, and their friend Brian. He'll take it from here. So it was me, Ross, Scott, and Brian. My mom dropped me off over there one Friday evening, and it was just kind of like a, all right, you know, stay safe. And she would always have this, like, really strange way of, like, saying goodbye, uh, especially when she dropped me off over someone's house. She would say, you know, all right, love you, goodbye, no pussy, no drugs. <laughs> and then, like, and then leave. But nonetheless, um, <laughs> I had only smoked one time before, and so I was still curious. So it's like maybe six, seven, you know, in the evening, and it's December. And so, you know, it's like a little sunset. And Ross lived in this, like, this dope-ass house, and he had um, a little balcony almost. Not a balcony, but like a really nice patio. And we were sitting out on the patio um, smoking this blunt, and I hadn't, you know, first off, I had never smoked a blunt. I had, you know, this was only my second time smoking, so smoking a blunt was also something like, whoa, okay, what the fuck, you know, this is this is what grown folks do, okay. I remember playing baseball, which is something that they like to do in order to make sure that you got high, but they were trying to teach me how to smoke, so you played baseball, so you hit it, and then you have to hold it in until you get the blunt again, and there are four people in the rotation, so... Needless to say, of course, I hit it, I try to hold it, I start choking immediately. <laughs> and I'm coughing, gagging, and, like, wheezing, and, I mean, it's just, like, I, my, my lungs are on fire, my throat's on fire, I'm just like, what the, what the hell is this? This definitely did not happen the first time. Well, you know, when we come back inside, and then, then it hits, like, ten, about, like, five, ten minutes later, and I just start you're getting really, you gotta, really you gotta, giddy. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta. You gotta do what you feel, do what you feel. Do what you feel, yeah, do what you feel. Do what you feel, do what you feel. I start having all of these crazy little, like, little fried-ass comments in between, and I started laughing out of nowhere. And it felt like I could feel how empty my stomach was. And they were like, you know, like, oh, you got the munchies. So... Of course, if you got the munchies, what else are you going to do besides go get something to eat? We go out to this marsh that's, like, around the corner from his house. And so, you know, first off, the scene is, like, you see <laughs> you see four black kids coming out of this gated community <laughs> with, like, Jordan flip-flops and do-rags. And we're, and we're just walking along 86th Street, which is, like, a mostly white area. And we're, you know, and we're just casually walking on the sidewalk in, the, you know, in the middle of December. And uh, we get to Marsh. And, you know, I guess you get what would be typically, like, munchy snacks. So... Me and Ross and Brian and Scott were all looking for food, right? And so I pick out some, you know, some typical shit. I'm not paying. I pick out a bag of chips. Ross gets a bag of chips. And then Brian's like, oh, that, you know, will be fire with us. Some some, some dip, you know? So uh, Brian grabs the dip and then we grab some drinks and we head up to the counter line. All high as hell in this fucking marsh on 86th Street. All these white people, like, just staring at us. Um, and... Tell me why Scott... Now, Scott, gotta understand, Scott is a huge-ass dude. You would think that he's the older brother if you looked at them side by side, right? So, Scott is, like, six foot three, six foot four at the time, 200, 250 pounds, big dude. This motherfucker comes up to the register. We all got chips and shit, and this motherfucker got a whole rotisserie chicken, a whole fucking rotisserie chicken. <laughs> like he's going to eat the motherfucker by himself. Like, 
<laughs> Who the fuck picks out a rotisserie chicken? I mean, we all looked at him. Well, I started laughing immediately. Um, Ross got just shitty. <laughs> so I'm not paying for a whole fucking rotisserie chicken for your fat ass to eat it all in one. And uh, like yelled at Scott until Scott put it back. But, you know, either or like that, that was my first, that was my first high. Came back and played video games and, uh, you know, watched some TV. Ross's parents come down. Of course, I start like immediately shitting my pants. Like, cause I'm like, oh shit, you know, I don't want to be around his parents. Hi, what if I smell, you know, all that good stuff. But, you know, it turned out okay. But for a first high and to be with people that you consider family, um, it's, you know, it's a memory that I fondly keep close. For American Student Radio, I'm Sarah Panfill. That's it for this week's show on pleasure. Thanks for listening, and tune in next time to hear host Stephen Johnson tackle the theme of language and all its intricacies. Ready? One, two, three. Happy Valentine's Day! Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com slash Lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-M-A-T-I-C. We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org. 